What's up? My name is Josiah Haken, and I've been working with homeless folks for over a decade. I'm convinced that one of the biggest reasons we have not been able to solve the homelessness crisis in our country is because we fundamentally do not understand why it happens or what or can be done about it. In this podcast, I'm going to interview friends of mine who have experienced homelessness firsthand, experts who have spent years of their lives trying to provide services and resources to their unhoused neighbors, and advocates and theologians who will help us think differently about the issue altogether. You are not going to agree with everyone I interview on this podcast. You may not even agree with me, and that is okay. Let's throw out our assumptions and consider the possibility that maybe there is more to this story than we previously thought. Welcome to the Neighbors with No Doors podcast. Alrighty, ladies and gentlemen, I am here with my very dear friend and someone who I admire beyond words that I can can probably use uh, in public because they I just feel so strongly about how amazing she is. We are here with my friend Deetra Thomas. Um, Deetra, thank you so much for taking a few minutes to share your experience and your story with. Me, I will just confess right up front, this is the first podcast interview I'm doing, and mm-hmm. so I have no clue what I'm doing, but I knew it had to involve Dietra in some way. Dietra, thank you so much for joining me here uh, on this podcast. I am honored that you would ask, and anytime I've been with you is a joy and exciting, and I'm honored, just honored to be here. Thank you. Amazing. So our our goal here is to, you know, with this podcast is to help uh, you know, educate people on the realities of homelessness and also equip them uh, and empower them to do something about it, right? Okay. So, um, I, so I'm going to ask, you know, all my guests and all the people that I get the pleasure of chatting with a couple of questions that I, because I, I want to get people's feedback on, on a couple of things before we even get into the topic. So Deetra, my first question is for you, what was your first introduction to just the reality of homelessness in general, even as a kid or as a young adult or whatever. Like when you think back to your life, what was your first memory or your first introduction to the reality of homelessness? Um, we were in Dallas, Texas, the man I was married to and our children. And we were doing um, a conference there. We were downtown Dallas at this conference center. And as we drove, there on the sidewalk were men and women sound asleep in the middle of the day on pieces of cardboard. And you could tell some were couples by the way that they were together, you know, just maybe holding hands, spooning or whatever. And it was sombering, sobering, I should say. It was, it was a somber experience. It was, it, it hurt, you know, it made me hurt inside uh, to see that level of disregard for what was going on in life to meet their needs for sleep and do it on a, in a very hot time of day on a piece of cardboard. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think so many people can relate to that. I mean, right now in our country, we're seeing homelessness become more and more visible uh, as people are, you know, in, in numbers in California, especially in tent encampments and on the West Coast and in New York City, where, where we operate, we see people, you know, around Penn Station, all the time. And it's becoming a much, you know, it feels anyway, that that it's becoming much more visible. So I know a lot of people can relate to that feeling of like seeing people sleeping outside and feeling that sort of ache and sadness Mm -hmm. um, around, 
around the issue. And I mean, obviously, we're going to get into your story and how you, um, you know, kind of got from this place of seeing people sleeping outside to actually being in a position where that could have that could, could have been you or would have been you. Um, yeah. And so, and I, I, you know, we're going to, I can't wait to hear your, you know, your story again and, and kind of how your journey progressed. But another question I have for you is if you, Dietra, could convince everyone listening to this podcast um, about one thing that society gets wrong about homelessness or those uh, who experience it, uh, what would you say? What would you say that if you knew it was going to convince everyone listening um, about one thing that society gets wrong about homelessness? That one size fits all. Mm. You know how you can order a piece of clothing and, you know, particularly if you're a woman, it says one size fits all baloney. <laughs> baloney. It may fit most everybody, but there are the ones who are too tiny that it swallows and there are the ones who are way too big and it, you know, morphs to their body. One size fits all is the biggest lie I know of. Once I, wow. So good. Oh my goodness. I'm so, that's such, so good. And then the last question before we get into your, you know, again, your story and your journey is what is one practical thing that you do on a regular or semi-regular basis to help your homeless neighbors, the people that you see uh, in, in your in, in where you, where you live and where you work. I live in West Harlem, and I just pay attention. You know, I try to look around and pay attention. And I've um, had the opportunity to be involved, I guess you would say, with four homeless people here where I live. One was um, my son and his wife brought my belongings from Arkansas. I finally got my own apartment. And so they brought my things in storage. I've been there four years. And I went down to the laundromat and asked if I could, you know, pay some help to come help unload the truck. And uh, the woman there uh, translate or she got a man in the laundromat to translate. He gave me his number. He said, give me 20 minutes notice. I gave him 20 minutes notice. My apartment, I, they knocked at my door. I opened it up and it was not the man who had said he would come with a helper. It was a man and a woman, a very tall, thin woman and a very short, heavier man. And I was like, oh my goodness. Those two people worked so hard and we got the truck unloaded. I And I told the man what I had to pay. My son paid some more. We uh, hired them to come back the next day. They ended up coming to my show that night. And so, and in the course of the day, we asked a few questions. They told us they were homeless. So what I would do, I had their number. I would say, hey, I have this job. This is what I'm willing to pay. Would you like to? So I, I had interaction with them for a while and then I, I no longer, they no longer respond. Hmm. Um, and then there've been a man just living on the street. You know, the restaurants will have the little shelter. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that he was sleeping out there and he would have his sleeping bag. And then the little shelter you know, restaurant would open the evening. He would be gone. And I observed this for a while. He always had a book. And so a lot of mornings I would go sit in the middle of Broadway and just kind of take in the morning. And one day he was, I noticed him observing me and I thought he's going to come talk to me. And he did. So I learned his name and a little bit about him. I offered to take him to one of your places in Harlem. Didn't work out, but I, you know, I see him from time to time. He's now in a shelter. He has a job. Um, 
you know, so I just kind of keep tabs on how he's doing. And then we had another lady just standing outside uh, the little bodega here. And she was open, you know, uh, she wasn't begging for money, but she was open. And I just said, hello, good morning to see how her reception was and how she was doing with her personal space and ended up connecting her with you. So I, I don't have a lot. I still don't have monetary things, but you know, those are the things I do. And I think, and that's, and that's my, so again, my prayer and my hope for this whole project, right. Is to help people realize that you don't have to have a lot to, to do a lot, right. Like the, and, and, and even how we gauge what it means to be, to do a lot. um, I think a lot of times we assume that the, you know, the, the scope of a problem determines our ability to get involved or solve that problem. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we think of homelessness as this huge problem. So we think, oh, I can't, I can't make a difference. I, you know, we got to leave that to the professionals, Um, you know, but, but in reality, there's something like, I love that you're, you're seeing your, your homeless neighbors and engaging them and, and then connecting them to me and then helping our, you know, our team is, you know, and I think, I know there's people around the country who are doing the kind of work that we do. And um, there's lots of folks that could be connected if, you know, if people Mm -hmm. took a little more initiative. So I just just want to say thank you to you for, uh, continuing to get in, in, engaged in, in helping people right where they are. So, Dietra, um, you have an incredible story. Um, I know you know that, and I know I know that. Uh, but a lot of uh, people that are maybe be listening don't don't know exactly what your story. So, I'd love for you to just share a, a little bit about, or what you're comfortable sharing um, about. The, kind of your life, maybe we'll get to the to the homeless part and how that happened. But even just before the homeless part, tell me a little bit about your life. Like, how did you before you ended up uh, without a place <laughs> to stay in in Lower Manhattan? Can you tell me a bit, a little bit about your your life? You mean when life was quote normal? Normal, yes. Yeah, quote normal. <laughs> this is going to be emotional. Back when life was, quote, normal, I was a pastor's wife in Arkansas. I had seven children. I home educated them. In fact, we traveled in 16 states for eight years. We did bluegrass, ventriloquism, chalk art, juggling, you know, um, crusades. We did bookstore openings. We did, we did everything. We did everything. And we were a great team. We were a, a fantastic team. Um, and then we, we, um, started planted a little church and we did that for a few years. And, um, so my life, in fact, I did a ministry. I ran a ministry for four years for homeless shelter. (laughs) And, you know, I would have told you that I had this great marriage. Uh, I worked so hard in my marriage and I would have told you I was happy. Um, Anyway, that was my life, and it revolved around my children, uh, my home, and the church. And I was a pastor's daughter, so that's all I ever knew. That's all you knew. All I and knew. So, so then tell us about the transition. Like, looking back, like, you went from a suburban housewife <laughs> to homeless in New York City. What <laughs> what happened? Like, what what, what cracks did you fall through? What, 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 how did, what happened to lead to that, that transition? Oh my goodness. You know, that is 
there's no single answer to that. And it wasn't, you know, I woke up one morning and that's what it was. You, you didn't just voluntarily decide, you know, I screw this whole suburban thing. I'm going to go be homeless in New York. That's not, that wasn't your thought process. You know, that's when I woke up in the morning and thought it sounded good to me. <laughs> um, I'm going to give you an answer that is true. And it's, and it's a complex answer. But the transition for me was believing lies and putting my faith that they were true. And these lies were what men created to control and manipulate from an established and an accepted platform. And there's many established and accepted platforms in life. So mine is not the only one, but mine was organized religion. Hmm. And I was taught from birth certain lies you know, and, you know, one of those lies uh, was, you know, I was told as several times as a teenager by my dad, when you get married, you have to marry somebody that can conquer you because you're too strong. Hmm. Now, and I was in a very ultra conservative religion, uh, very patriarchal, you know, I was taught from birth, the woman is made for the man. And uh, was drawn charts on how I had to stay under the man. And if I did not obey him and ask his permission and blessing for everything, that God would not bless me and he would not protect me. I took that seriously. Very, very, very seriously. Um, and it cost me. It cost me everything. And so that was the transition. And then I went to this little tiny Christian college, you know, um, got married. And the week before I married, my mom, um, and, and I'm telling you, my mom, my mom meant well, but it was, you know, Dietra, just so you know, marriage is forever. If there's any problems, we'll take him, but we won't take you. And so... And plus another lie that I was taught was uh, you find a good Christian man and get married and you have the perfect marriage. Mm -hmm. And well, that's a, that's not true. Maybe it is. And I just didn't have a good Christian man. I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> um, three weeks into my perfect marriage, I wanted out. Hmm. And, you know, I look back and here's another thing I was taught, you know, if a man hits a woman, that's wrong. There was no training. There was no, conversations around passive aggressive sociopaths or psychopathic behavior. None, none. That wasn't a consideration. That wasn't an allowance. That wasn't anything. And the submissive lie, and, and trust me, I am someone who doesn't have a problem with the word submission or doing it because if we don't have traffic lights, we're going to have a lot of wrecks, you know? Yeah, true story. So, and I submit to traffic lights. So that's not the issue, you know? Mm -hmm. It is the abuse of, it is the manipulation of, it is the controlling of, and it is using an established platform, in my case, the name of God to hide neurosis mm -hmm. and not taking responsibility for yourself. And so that was the transition. And I will say I begged for over 30 years for him to get help. I begged. And... 
I finally, after 32 years, I went and talked to someone because I never told anybody about my marriage. Because after all, I'm type A, I'm a hard worker. I read all the Nancy Drew and Hardy Boy books. I would <laughs> figure this out, you know. And it, and it probably could have been seen as a betrayal of the, the power structure, right? Like if you yeah. dared to talk about your marriage yeah. outside of the context of your husband. I mean, I just know that that environment is, you know, yeah. creates an environment. It creates a, a, a pattern of secrecy and, 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 hit, yeah. and hides things because, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking, I'm just, at, you know, thinking out loud. That's here, true. Yeah. That's true. And and right at the end, one man did ask me a question and I said something about my husband. I said, you know, he lies. And I got uh, called into an office and ripped, ripped up one side and down the other and accused of all manner of things that I hadn't even done for saying that. So, yes, it would be a betrayal. Um, and so I didn't. And so I went to a counselor who had helped me through some childhood things. And I said, I need to talk about my marriage. And the only way I've been able to articulate is I had Polaroid snapshots I collected through the years. And you ever played that game, What's Wrong With This Picture? <laughs> and I had these snapshots and I could not figure out what's wrong with the picture, but I knew something was wrong. And so as I told her, you know, she had a question. She goes, Deidre, if he was beating you, would you leave him? I said, oh, yeah, of course. I mean, I am I am smart, you know, after all. I know. I would leave, yes. And she said, well, you'd be better off if he beat the crap out of you every day. And even in my world, the word crap was yeah. pretty. You know, I was like, <laughs> well, oh, my. A heathen is... therapist. Yeah, I thought, this is bad. She's using the word crap. <laughs> And uh, she said, you'd be better off if he beat the crap out of you every day. The thing that happened for me was, you know how you can search and search and search for something? And when you find it, I knew that was the answer. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I, uh, the pain I had been hiding behind my, I'm going to be submissive and love and forgive him. And he's going to wake up and understand how mean he is and cruel solidified into oh my and so here's how i dealt with that <laughs> i went home and apologized to him for being a bad wife because i realized i wasn't being loving and submissive i was enabling all of a sudden the lens you know focused and i was like oh, i thought i was being this submissive godly wife and i've enabled a monster and that was terrible for me. And I apologized to him. Uh, and I just told him, good old Dietra's done doing this. Now let's see what you're going to do. I've been talking to you for over 30 years. And so brought in a mediator. I brought in an interventionist. They were horrified, but I watched them be charmed by his language and the name of God. And we... You know, I, I'd done all I could do. And I mm -hmm. was being seen as you're not forgiving and you have an anger problem. I have an anger problem. Um, but I was to the point where if something doesn't happen, I knew I wasn't going to, I was going to die. Whether from a broken heart, and I'm not saying that lightly. Yeah. Or from suicide. So, you know, I'd been researching passive aggressive sociopaths. I had been reading you know, things. And I knew some more and 
you know, we're driving down the interstate. I've just been in the office of a man who's ripping me up one side and down the other because I'm not obeying this man, everything he says. And I don't know. My The man I was married to took confidence from this man being rude to me. And as we're driving, uh, he uttered the words, you know, you just need to get on my side and work with me. And I snapped and I said, I've been on your side for 34 years. And I, I did something, I don't know. I, I, I'd been begging God, show me what to do. And I'd been told by four people, you got to get away from this man. How do you get away? Mm. How do you get away from everything you've ever known, you've ever believed, you've been taught? And, and, I, was, and I finally said, you know, I don't know how to do this. God, you got to show me. And he uttered those words. And I, I said, I've been on your side. And I just looked at him. I said, you're a son of a bitch, which was far worse than crap, you know. <laughs> and he I don't know who was more shocked, me or him. Uh, yeah. And he pulled over and got in my face with his finger yelling at me. And I don't know. It was uh, it was like, this is it. And I felt like I just get out. So I got my purse, opened the door of my Suburban and started walking down the interstate. And, uh, you know, I said, God, I need help. It was dusky dark. And um, I said, I don't mind walking, but, you know, It'd be kind of, I could get hit out here, somebody not seeing me. And I looked up and there was a car already pulled over, brake lights off. And a lady got out, got to me, ma'am, do you want to ride? And I said, I do. I was sobbing. Hmm. And she said, well, God said to stop and pick you up. And I said, I told him I needed help. And I disappeared with the help of two sons. I disappeared. One brought me to New York. He lived in New York. I would never have come to New York for love nor money. Never, <laughs> never. And I was with him a year and they moved with a job to Albuquerque. And I was like, you know what? There comes a time when I got to figure this out. And, and the other son in Arkansas wanted me to come live with him, but he lived in the town where I was born. I married, went to the college. It wouldn't have mattered. I would yeah. have had this emotional drama of, oh, she's a pastor's wife that ran away. And I, I, I knew it would kill me. So, um, you know, with, for a couple of months with some friends help, I, I rented a room for really, really cheap till I could figure out something and um, ended up in a homeless shelter in New York. And, um, you know, looking back, I'm just wondering if, you know, what are some things that maybe you, you took for granted before that homeless shelter experience? Like I'm just like leading up to that, that season. I know you were employed, right? You were working, um, yeah. uh, you know, at, I, I believe it was Starbucks, right? You were yeah. working. Um, I mean, I, and I, you know, we both have that in common. I worked at Starbucks for, <laughs> for about, you know, nine months or so. Yeah. Um, and so I'm just one, like, I just know the, the engagements you have at a Starbucks and the engagements you have uh, is, you know, as a pastor's wife and mother, and suburban, like, and I'm just wondering as you were some things, if there's anything that comes to mind in terms of when you were in that shelter, sort of some, just some things that you just never really thought of or things that you just never occurred to you before that experience. Um, I was, I lived in the shelter four months and there were a lot of things, one freedom to, you know, live your life, but, um, T tell me, was, sorry, tell me a little bit about that. Cause I think, again, I think a lot of people don't understand 
they think that a shelter is like a hotel or they think that they, like a lot of, like a lot of times people see someone on the street and they, they ask the question, well, why don't they just go into a shelter? What, yeah. what what's wrong? And so, and I think it's important what you just said, like the, the lack of freedom. Yeah. So, so maybe we even pause and just say, talk there a little bit. Like what, what were some of the, the realities of being in a shelter that most people don't think about? Well, for this one that I ended up and some shelters would not take me because I had a job and I had to be there at five in the morning. And the fact that homeless shelters would tell me to give up my job or that I couldn't. And it wasn't one. It was more than one, which was crazy to me. I was like, I have a job, you know, and I'm trying not to be homeless anymore. But this one that I was in had 30 women in one room. And so you had to check in between four and 425 every afternoon, unless you could prove that you were working. Um, and when you checked in, you were in lockdown, you know, and then for us women, we had to walk in a straight line. I kid you not line up like kindergartners to go upstairs to the room where we transitioned getting our things out of, you know, our suitcase that we would need for the night locking. You had to lock up all your possessions. I understand. So they wouldn't be stolen, but still, you know, you forget something, you're out of luck. And then we had to walk in a straight line down to eat. And then we had to walk in a straight line back up to our room. Now, if you chose, and then we had to be, you know, our names taken to get a shower. Um, you were timed for showers. You had 10 minutes to get undressed, shower, clean the shower and get out. And I, I didn't think that was possible. Guess what? I learned. I learned. <laughs> I bet you did. Yes, I did. And I, I, I want to pause here just a moment and tell you how I learned how I learned to be creative. In my four months, we had to call the police many times to come home women out, you know, that it wasn't going well. And one night a lady checked in, it wasn't going well. And I was on the bottom bunk, she was on the top bunk, and she was on the top bunk filming everybody, throwing things, cursing, they had to call the police. Anyway, it became a real deal. And here's what I thought of. Everyone's occupied. No one's guarding the showers. No one's timing. I'm going to go get a shower. I had a 20 minute luxurious shower <laughs> and I put a guard at the door and I said, keep me updated on the progress. <laughs> got to get creative. <laughs> brilliant. What a <laughs> So, but you're on lockdown. Now, if you chose to go to chapel after chapel, you could go outside and stand for 10 minutes. It was called the smoke break. And I determined I would buy cigarettes and a lighter if I needed to, but that was the only fresh air you got. Yeah. And that was important to me. And I would go yeah. stand out there for 10 minutes and then you're on lockdown. Um, and then fortunately I had, I had a job. And I had to leave early. So a guard would wake me up at 3.20 in the morning. I guess 3 o'clock and I would leave by 3.40. The other women, I, I never stayed. Even my days off, I, I didn't tell anybody it was my day off. I got up and got out. But at a certain time, they have wake up and they've got 45 minutes. All showers are done the night before to get their clothes together. And, the, and if you didn't have a job, you had to carry your suitcase with you every day. They had to be out of the shelter by 7.45, not allowed to come back in till 4. It is... It is, it's horrendous. Yeah, best case scenario. I mean, even if we're, we're painting with the rosiest of of, of, of colors, right? It's, yeah. it's 
restricted. That's why the word freedom. I mean, yeah. I, I talk to people all the time who tell me that they would actually prefer, they actually prefer jail to the shelter because at least in jail, when someone wanted to hurt you, they would move you to a different cell block. Oh. <laughs> Whereas in a shelter, you were like, yeah. well, you don't have to be here. So if someone wants to hurt you, then you're just on your own. Um, and it's just something that I think a lot of people need to, you know, again, come yeah. to come to grips with. This is reality for people. Like yeah. the, I, I tell people a lot of times that people don't choose to sleep in the street. They choose not to sleep in shelters. And yeah. and there's legitimate reasons for that. So I thought it was really it's thank you so much for sharing. Cause I think it's just really helpful for people to remember. Cause I know that I've talked to a lot of people. Why don't they just go into a shelter? Well, it's yeah, it's not what you think. Um, and yeah, at the shelter I was at, there were only 30 beds from women, unless it was below 32. And then there were mats everywhere. But so, you know, let's say 35 women show up, which in very, you know, most nights more than 30 women showed up. Now I had a job, I had a guaranteed bed. I don't know what I would have done if I didn't, but the rest of the women were in a lottery, literally their name goes in a bowl. And if there's 35 women, five names are drawn and those women are on the streets for the night. Yeah. And I, I don't know, but what it would be easier to live on the streets than every night to be in the lottery and not know. I, yeah. I, I cried so many nights at women I'd grown to love that were just out on the streets. And the yeah. next, I would say, what did you do? What did you do? Yeah. You know, and they would tell me it, it, it was, it's, yeah. t- it's an emotional roller coaster that's devastating. Yeah. And tell me, tell me a little bit about the, the concept of time, um, you know, cause again, I know like, you know, you said you were in the shelter for four months. Is, is that, yeah. and I, I guarantee just cause I know you and I've been around this world, right. I've been done this work long enough now to know that, you know, one day, uh, two nights without a, without a steady private bed to sleep in that's shelter that's protected from the elements. Like it, it's it's like your sleep like even the sleep i know like i tell people a lot like sleep mm-hmm. is like i think the geneva convention says makes sleep like <laughs> makes like sleep deprivation is torture it's actually torture yeah. i think it's a war crime actually to keep yeah. people awake and yeah. when, when when people don't have a place to stay it, and it can really mess with your concept of time so i'm just wondering if you can share a little bit about even like four months i, I know there's one person out there probably who's going to hear this be like well four months that's not that's not so bad, but <laughs> which is nuts. Like again, that's a uh, not to pick on the person who's thinking that I, I am, but tell us a bit about what the, the you know that experience did in terms of your ability to process time and 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 life in general with during that season. I guess I would put it in terms of this: when I two friends kept my extra clothing, and I was allowed to take a little suitcase and my person to the shelter, when I walked through those doors, I had no idea it was gonna be four months. The the concept of time was, it's infinity in front of me of, and when I walked in that door, I walked in knowing that this may be the end. Hmm. And so I didn't have the timeline of four months. I can look back now and go, okay, four months, I did it. But when you go in, 
you don't know and there's no clear path there's no steps there's no method there's no you do this for so many days you get this there's no reward if you're good and i like being good and getting a reward you know there was none of that it was just oh you're here uh, they guaranteed a bed for three months. Now, they were gracious and extended it another month for me. Um, but I did fill out paperwork. There was a, a situation. I can't remember the name of the place, but I, if I could have gone there for a year and this very low rent and I could have had my own bedroom but shared um, a bathroom and there was a bed and it was so exciting. One of the other women had moved there and the social worker, the shelter, we filled it all. It was pages and pages and pages. And that bed went to an employee's relative. Mm. And I lost it. I, I I, I don't even want to go there to say what that did. Yeah. Yeah. It, but, but the concept of no time and you don't know leaves you on the edge of an emotion that you have to consciously make the choice. I'm not going to fall off the edge today. Maybe tomorrow. But today I'm going to do this. It's, it's incredible that you, so this is what I thought of when you described that. And I think it's so perfect. Like, I can't thank you enough for being able to describe, like, just the, your, your, your gift to be able to describe and put into words what I think, because what you're describing in terms of the time actually made me think of a time when I was doing a, like a 60 mile portage in, uh, in Canada at a lake, uh, at a Algonquin National Park. I would, did this where you have to carry your canoe on your back for over the land and then you'd get in the canoe and you'd, you'd mm -hmm. row. Um, and I remember one stretch where it was like a three and a half mile portage where you had to put everything on your back. And, and my friend and I were like, we're going to, instead of trading places, we're going to do this the whole way each. We're going to carry someone else's canoe and we're going to do this each our whole way. And I remember just starting out and just lugging this canoe on my back. And I remember not knowing how far I had gone. Yeah. I couldn't, cause there were no mile markers. There were no indications of you've gone, you know, halfway there and I just remember just the just the anxiety and like once you start that pack started weighing down yeah. on me and the canoe is rubbing into my neck and, and it's tolerable if you think there's an end in sight you can kind of right. kind of put up with it but if you have no clue if you've gone a hundred yards or two and a half mm -hmm. miles it's an eternity it, it, I mean I just yeah. remember that three mile stretch so I just that's what immediately what I thought of when you described it because I think it's so brilliant that yeah, without knowing, without an end in sight, it is, it is. And it's whether you're there a, four days or four months or four yeah. years, it, it feels like an eternity because you have no clue how far you've gone or how much farther you have to go. Sure. So, so, the, so how did you, how did you survive? Like, like, I guess that's the other question is like, how, what kept you, what kept you going? You just said you, you took it one day, you know, each day you're like, today's not the day I'm going to give up. But like, what motivated you? How did you, how did you make it? Um, prayer, even though I do not go to church anymore. Okay. I, I really have had my feel of organized religion. I have not lost my faith in a one true living God. That's not boxed into something. And someone tells me what to do to make him happy. And I'm a woman of prayer. And I believe down to my 10 red piggies that he has a way and a plan and that he opens doors. That being said, I'd been there about a week and a half and I knew I wasn't going to survive unless I could write. And so by this time I had a second job and it happened to be paper source. So now I'm working two jobs and I got a discount 
And I went and found a journal that was blue, my favorite color. And on the front in gold letters, it says, hello, beautiful and script. Mm. And I needed that word in my life because there was nothing beautiful about my life. And I began to write. And, and in the course of the four months, I wrote over 300 handwritten pages of the angst, the trauma, the, you know, the never having a private moment, the having to call my son by sitting in a doorway on Smith Street and a business that nobody was going to be going in and out the door and having a conversation of people on the street going by and listening to it. it I, 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 this, I made it. And then I had some friends, um, you know, who cheered me up uh, and they knew, you know, that I was having a hard time. And one in particular, I could walk in the door and he'd go, wow, we're going to go get some fries today, you know? And so <clears throat> it was smiles and, I just knew that God had made me for a reason and it wasn't to give up. Hmm. I've argued with him about that many days. I'm going to be honest. I'm not trying to say that was done easily for me. Um, and I think also, I just, I don't know how to give up. I've tried some days and I get bored with it, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to go do something, but um, prayer, and just the little things. And, you know, it wasn't prayers of demanding that I get out of the shelter, prayers that God do things my way, prayers that, you know, this happened. It was, you know, God, I need light for today. What what, what today? Um, and the other thing was just loving on everybody else. I mean, I was a Starbucks barista and an opener. And, you know, my, those people didn't know. They didn't know anything. I loved them coming in every morning for their caffeine, you know. I knew all their names. I knew their drinks. I knew their families. And I got to love on people. That kept me going. Yeah. That kept me going. Absolutely. I, I, yeah. And I, I mean, I remember talking to you through that, through that season. And again, this is, it's, that's why it's no exaggeration for me to say that you're, again, you inspire me and you're just the, I mean, remember, I remember you telling me you like picked up boxing. Like, yeah, or like, well, tell, tell me a little bit about that. <laughs> well, you know, I've mentioned I had a little, I had childhood trauma. It was intense childhood trauma. And uh, then, you know, finding out it wasn't just that. I, I, I thought my childhood trauma was kind of making things bad in my marriage. I come to find out it was, the marriage was the whole thing in itself, you know. So I decided that if I could do the little speed bag, you know, the little bag that hangs from the frame yep. the, the one that rocky uses right right and you know you that's not one where you just go crazy and slug it that one takes it takes symmetry it takes rhythm it takes a romance to keep that going but i thought i really need to hit something and i didn't want to be a wild and crazy woman but i thought if i could do that i could hit but while staying controlled and one day at the shelter a counselor goes uh we were all in the big chapel watching sunday football and he said, Dietra, do you like football? I said, oh, I love a Hail Mary pass in the end zone to win the game. And I said, do you like football? He goes, I like boxing. And I said, oh, my goodness, I want to do the speed bag. And he goes, Dietra, there's a boxing gym a few blocks away. And so he brought a flyer. I um, And I thought, I want to go see about the speed bag. I went in. I don't know if anyone like me had ever walked in that boxing gym. <laughs> and there were two men sparring in the ring, and there was a guy at the desk, and you know, he kind of did this and, you know, can I help you? And I said, do you have a speed bag? 
And again, you know, he kind of did a double take and he goes, uh, you know, we have everything but this feedback. So it gives me a tour of the gym. Meanwhile, the men sparring keep getting my attention. And the odd thing was they keep triggering deep emotion. And the man giving me the tour was very gentlemanly. And I would turn aside, try to get the sobs under control. And he didn't say anything till we got back to the desk. And he said, if you don't mind me asking, why a speed bag? I said, a lot of abuse. He said, have you considered taking boxing? I said, as in hit somebody? <laughs> I was horrified. And he said, as in learning self-defense. And so for $40, I could take a trial class and I went back and I pondered on this and I thought, you know what? I, I don't have much money, but the thought of raising my hand to defend myself, I would start sobbing, thinking about it. I thought I need to go face the fear. You know, I wasn't able to defend myself as a child mm -hmm. or, as a, or as a wife or as a wife. And I need, I don't need to fall apart thinking, even lifting my hand. So I thought I'm going to go pay the $40, face the fear, get this over with, you know, move on in life. So went in and paid my $40. And then the thing was, I had nothing to wear for a boxing class. And I told the women at the shelter and they dressed me for my, my little trial thing. And one of them went to the closet and got a pair of men's swimming trunks that so old, dilapidated Velcro, you know, lace up. I could barely get myself in it. And she brought this uh, scoop neck t-shirt that molded. And I was like, oh my, I, and the, the thing is the women made me put it on and go the whole circle between all the bunk beds, you know, like a fashion run. Like a fashion show. Yeah. Deidre, I said, I cannot wear this in a boxing gym. I'm not going to wear a t-shirt molded to me. So when I'm dug around her suitcase and, and got out a very thick black cotton oversized t-shirt the owner of the gym has told me, I will never forget what you wore in here that first day. <laughs> and I wore my work black shoes from Starbucks. And I went in, my lesson was with the owner of the gym. He asked me three questions. Where are you from, kid? Well, I'm from Arkansas. What's your first, what's your worst fear, kid? Lifting my hand to defend myself. What do you think is going to happen? I'm going to be in the floor crying. He said, go get dressed. I'm about to change your life. And we had our lesson. And this man is intuitive. He asked questions. He tried his best to make me sob and cry. He had a white towel. And anytime he'd say something and a tear would trickle, he'd hand me the, cow, the towel. I said, I don't need it. He said, you, I'm going to make you cry. I said, not today. You're not. <laughs> but at the end of it, you know, he's like, kid, when you're coming back. And I, I, I wasn't going to tell him I was in shelter. I said, well, uh. And he turned and yelled at the woman on the desk. He said, put the kid's name on the list, give her a T-shirt. And he turned around and he said, you're mine. Huh. He said, you're behind the eight ball. I'm going to teach you how to do this. Get your phone. Here's my number. You're going to call me and we're going to get you. And he, for nine months, three men trained me. And I learned how to box and, you know, defend myself. That's, that's so amazing. That makes me so happy. I'm smiling. I can't even get the smile to leave my face. I'm so happy about that story. Um, all right. I know again, I, you and I could probably talk for hours. Um, so tell us about the, how did you get, so the transition then from the shelter towards the journey towards stability and, and, and housing and um, yeah. What, what happened there? How did you, how did you, what changed? Two Starbucks, two Starbucks customers 
two different women asked me identical two questions. One changed my life physically, one changed my life emotionally. The question was this, Deidre, do you live in the area? And I said, well, I used to. I lived in Carroll Gardens with my son and his wife for a year. Next question, where do you live now? And, you know, I get to ask a lot of questions in New York, but people don't generally ask, where do you live? That's just not a question they ask. And I, the first time I was, I said, I live in a homeless shelter. She's like, you do not. I said, well, I do. Right now you're in a homeless shelter. I said, yes. She ran out of the store crying. But what I realized was my address didn't define me. Hmm which led me to the next thought of why was I letting from my childhood and the man I married and other things define me. And I was. So that helped me to reframe who I was and realize that I decide who I am. And the other, the lady asked me same two questions and I was in a homeless shelter and she's like, Deetra, can I ask you questions? And I said, sure. And so then one, the last one was, can my husband and I meet with you tomorrow when you get off work? They did. And he was like, Dietrich, can I ask questions? I said, look, I don't go around telling it, you know, but ask what you want. He asked personal questions. He asked financial questions. And when, when we were done, he said, Dietrich, we just know you as our barista, but we love you. And we, we cannot even imagine and so this is what we want to do. We want to give you this many hundreds of dollars a month for six months. We want to help you get out. We don't ever want to be paid back. And we want to invest in you. And that is how I was able to get out of the shelter. And uh, I looked at a couple of rooms and, well, one, one lady wouldn't take me because I didn't speak a little bit of Polish. Uh, which I thought was interesting. <laughs> that's, an odd, that's an odd discrimina discrimination category. Yeah, it, it really was. Uh, it, it never mind. It just wasn't the place for me. And so um, the, I, I had done one music show by this time, and I have uh, five guys that play in my band. And the drummer had bought an apartment in Harlem and knew I was in a shelter because teacher come out here and look. And he travels with a big band, and he said, "I'm going to rent to somebody. I'd rather rent to you than a college student who's going to trash my place while I'm gone." And so, with what I was making, with what they were going to give me. I was able to move in um, and rent a room for him for two and a half years is what I did. Hmm. Yeah. And I started, eventually I was working four jobs, seven days a week. I was getting up at two o'clock in the morning. I start working for the train here in Harlem at three in the morning. So I could be in Brooklyn, you know, uh, start my job at five and I have to be early. And you know, with the train situation, I was there very early, but um, yeah. And little by little, and then I needed a full-time job and nobody would give me an interview. I sent out resumes. Nobody, I was 55 at that time. Nobody's going to, in New York, they got kids who they can pay cheap. They're not going to hire a 55 year old. And I think in their mind, she's ready to retire. They didn't know I had nothing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm never going to retire. I'm just going to nasty away, you know? <laughs> so they're like, we're not going to hire her. And I'm like, I'm a pretty safe bet. You know, I'm desperate. I'm working. But eventually I realized that my, all my jobs were coming from my Starbucks customers who knew my work ethic, who yeah. saw me, who knew my attitude. And so I decided to tell a few of them I needed a full-time job, had no idea what they did for a living, told one of my favorite customers and had no idea where he worked, gave me a business card. Long story short, he's the global CEO of where I work now. And um, 
He said, I took your resume to HR and I just said, I have an unorthodox candidate. And I, that's my favorite description of me to this day. I love it. Yeah, I'm, to- I'm totally going to name this podcast the unorthodox candidate. <laughs> <laughs> that's totally, totally going to be the name. So um, amazing. Like I said, I know I could just sit here and listen for hours. But I guess one, one last question I would ask um, and, and I hopefully maybe I'll even have you back and we'll, we'll have a part two and, and, and keep talking because this is just so much fun. But what are looking back now and now, you know, looking looking back and now then looking ahead, what are some lessons that you carry with you um, from that time, from that season? Um, and, you know, again, how how can how can all of us do more to to help? Um, people who are in crisis uh, and, 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 and help people move forward? I think uh, probably the biggest, there were two big things learned in the shelter. One I've told you about an address doesn't define me. Okay. And let's be honest, homelessness is a stench. Okay. And most people, it has a terrible stench and they don't want it anywhere near them, you know, and I was living it and I knew how people felt about it. You know, in fact, the shelter, the women would line up outside the wall. We weren't allowed to stand on this street. We had to line up on this other street. And the people passing by would look and shake their heads at the women there, you know. And for a couple of months, I would not go get in that line. I would go down to a little grocery store, sit in the window, get a little some dollar snack or something. And I'd wait till time. And I would walk through the front door when it was time as if, you know, I belonged there. But when I learned the lesson that I was not embarrassed to tell that woman I lived in the shelter and that it didn't define me, even though I was, it was a real thing. You could see what homelessness people think. I thought, you know what? (laughs) I am homeless right now. And I'm going to own it. And I'll never forget the first day that I went and stood in the line with my fellow sisters and we were all homeless. And as I started that way, they looked up and they saw me coming. And it was like, oh, teacher, teacher, come stand by me. Come stand by me, you know. And as the people passed, you know, and looked at us and shook their heads and, you know, whispered something to the person with them. I just smiled and stood proudly beside my sisters. It was what I was at that time, but I also knew it didn't define who and what I was and it couldn't define who and what I was going to be. Mm-hmm. And that was an important lesson for me. The other thing that is huge for me is um, <sighs> sorrow is a heavy negative emotion. And I have watched sorrow destroy many people. Being a pastor's daughter, pastor's wife, I've watched what sorrow does and how they choose to incorporate it into their lives. I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) How dare you? How dare you feel? (laughs) (laughs) So um, the thing I've learned is this. Sorrow, the heavy negative emotion, when it's taken in with a closed heart and mind, it begins to fester, it it builds up bacteria, and it leads to anger, bitterness, and revenge, 
which produces manipulation, controlling, and entitlement. Hmm. You owe me because I have this in my life. We're living in that world right now. But sorrow, when taken in with an open heart and mind, somehow that heavy negative emotion that you think is going to rip you inside, tear you up, shred you as it passes through the open heart and mind, it's not allowed to fester and build up all the bacteria. It somehow becomes a positive and it matures, it deepens, it, it, it lets you have empathy it, it, it allows you to see life differently in a, in, a, in a way that's like getting trifocals. It's like going to the eye doctor and getting an eye exam and putting on, you know, and I, I wear trifocals. I remember mm-hmm. putting them on thinking, oh my goodness, I didn't know that was blurry. And I also have astigmatism and it straightens things. So that's what it's like. And I'm able with maturity and empathy live in my world in a good way. So sorrow becomes positive. And then what happens is since sorrow is not bottled up and festering, which take overwhelms you when it's an open heart and mind, it then propels you to go through open mm-hmm. doors. It propels you to do something different. It propels you to think differently, to love differently. And it becomes a positive in your life, not a negative. Mm-hmm. That was transforming for me that I could carry this amount of sorrow and it's more sorrow than I even want to admit at this time. And you can go on, you know, you can go on. Amazing. Um, thank you so much. I can't even begin to say how what it means to me to again have have you share your story with me and um help again i think utilize even this is like like the redemptive power of of uh, even paying that forward and, and taking that sorrow and allowing it not just to be something that you're able to to leverage for your own you know redemption but now it's even being passed on it's actually being put forward to other people and other people are going to be able to kind of grab hold of it and say, Oh, I, I want that same redemption that Dietra has. Um, mm-hmm. And I know that there have been so many people. I know you've shared the story um, with a lot of people who know the, the organization that I work with and, um, and we're just, it's a gift. Every time you share your story, it is a gift to me. It's a gift to others who, um, who need the perspective and, and again, the healing that you've gone through, uh, that you've earned, um, that we kind of get to sort of adopt (laughs) and it's a gift. So thank you for that gift and, um, just appreciate you so much. And I can't wait to, to, to share this story with, um, and and parts of the story with, with so many people. Well, Josiah, the gift for me has been knowing you, you know, when we were introduced, I was desperate. I had no idea. And I was asking questions and they, someone put me in touch with you. That first meeting, I was late, five minutes late. And in my world, you know, that's an hour late, disrespectful. I've learned now New York time, five minutes is not considered late. No. Yeah. <laughs> not I, even I, close. I was rattled. I, I, I have complex PTSD and sweating is a way that that, and I was drenched. And I entered that room just, I didn't know if I was going to make it. 
and sat down at the table with you and Teresa and your eyes, your eyes, no judgment, hmm. your smile, and you're just saying, tell me about it, you know? And I would say, if you notice people in your neighborhood, smile and just casually say good morning, see the reception, how are you doing? See the reception and maybe ask another question. Yeah. And that's what you taught me. And that's what you did when I was at the worst place in my life. Mm -hmm. So thank you for teaching me. It's my pleasure. Amazing. Thank you, Deetra. I am so grateful that you took the time to listen to this episode of the Neighbors with No Doors podcast. I hope you found it helpful and empowering. Just so you know, I'm releasing a book that is also going to be called Neighbors with No Doors, and I would love for you to check it out. You can find it at neighborswithnodoors.com. You can like our Facebook page or follow along on Instagram and Twitter. I'd like to thank my producer, Rex Harson, for helping me put this together, as well as the many guests who gave me the gift of their time and their story. Have a great day. We'll see you next time.